right, at this point, I think our kids are going to go out and practice their, uh, for their kids' program. And uh, so kids, feel free to do that. And uh, everyone else, if you're sticking around, uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. And so uh, pretty early in your New Testament, you have your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you'll find yourself in the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and do that. Uh, there are a few Bibles that should be uh, in front of you. So feel free to grab those pew Bibles and turn to page 892. And uh, if not, most of the text should be up on the screen, uh, Acts chapter 12. Uh, as we're turning and as we're flipping there, uh, just by way of introduction, uh, we just concluded last Sunday a very short, uh, short four-part series um, over the, books, uh, the book of Hebrew entitled Siren, Warnings from the Book of Hebrews. And so I encourage you to continue uh, to chew on that and continue to be in the book of Hebrews. This morning, we're going to do a, just a short uh, individual sermon on prayer. Uh, and then uh, as we get into the month of December, Uh, we'll be doing a new series called Home for the Holidays. And it it will be a short three-part series um, examining the lives of three uh, sets of people, uh, all of which were not home during the holidays. And so that's where we're going to be going. Uh, And this morning, we are in Acts chapter 12. and I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Power of a Praying Church. Um, I kind of had an off week, if you will, but in between series, and this has really been something that uh, has been on my heart for a while. It's been something that we've discussed as elders for a while, and uh, through various conversations with a few people, uh, I really feel burdened uh, to talk about prayer and what prayer looks like in our church and what it could look like in our church. So I decided that this would be a really good Sunday in between series to do that. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 12, and we'll begin uh, the, with the, the power of a praying church. So let's pray this morning one more time. Father, thanks for your presence among us. It's really good to be back together um, with the body of Christ, uh, and it's really good to be in your presence. Uh, you indeed are life. Uh, you are our portion. Uh, you are indeed what we are worth living for. And while we ha- all had wonderful, I hope we had wonderful holiday weeks, I pray that you would help us, oh God, to love you most, um, to not idolize anything, but to pursue you as this, our supreme good, as our supreme joy, and your best gift to us, your biggest blessing to us, is yourself, and you've given us yourself, and you've given us your son to redeem us, uh, to purchase us from our sins, to cleanse us, and then you've given us and sent your Holy Spirit to renew us, to transform us, to cause us to be born again, and to enable us to live in a way that is honoring to Christ and is utterly transformative. And so we are so grateful, God, for you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We bless your name, and we ask for your presence among us. Give us hearts that are open to hear your word, and I pray that you would stir in in, in the hearts and the lives of your people. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir in my heart and in my life. Cause us to hunger to meet with you in prayer. God, cause us to hunger to see your hand at work answering our prayers, uh, enabling us to go on mission for the cause of Christ. We utterly need your supernatural presence to be among us. And one way that you give us that is by prayer. And so God, help us lay this burden on us as a church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie The Shawshank Redemption. It's an old movie. In fact, I think it probably came out in the 90s. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I think it's, What? That's an old movie. (laughs) Hey, I was a teenager in the 90s, okay? (laughs) I'm sorry if I... No, please, no tomatoes. Don't throw any... I just had a week off, okay? (laughs) Uh, Old is in not within the past five years. It's a movie, and it's called The Shawshank Redemption. 
and it's a good movie. I really enjoy it. It has some, some, some harsh parts. I wouldn't watch it with, uh, with, with, a, with a child. But it's a wonderful movie. And it's a movie about a man named Andy Dufresne. And he is played by the actor Tim Robbins. And the movie is essentially about Andy, who is a successful businessman, uh, has everything going for him. And then he is, is essentially framed for the murder of his wife. And so he's framed, uh, he's convicted, and he's sentenced to the Shawshank Prison. And it's the worst worst of the worst with the worst of the worst criminals, and he is wrongly in there. Well, he's in the jail, and to make a long story short, he becomes friends with uh, a well-known prisoner by the name of Red, who's played by Morgan Stanley. Now, Red is kind of like a dealer, is the best way I can describe him. He has access to things that other prisoners don't, and he can get certain items from the outside to prisoners for a certain price. And so Andy strikes up a friendship with Red, and throughout the movie, what you find out is that Andy asks Red for various items, and the items are just kind of odd. Uh, first, uh, he asks him for a little chisel, and I mean a very little, itty-bitty little chisel, and, and Red laughs at him, saying, yeah, you're going to bust out of here with that, okay. And really what he said he wanted to do with it was make uh, uh, chess pieces out of the rocks in the yard. And so as the movie goes on, he asks for other things. At some point, he asks for a big poster to be put up, in his, uh, in his prison cell. And interestingly enough, you'll, you see little clips of what he's actually doing with these items. And what you see is that every day he has uh, dirt in his pocket as he's moving out of his jail cell into the yard. And as he's walking in the jail yard, you see these little rocks and crumb, uh, crumble, crumbling kind of down his pants into the, into the yard. And you get the idea that there's something coming. You get the idea that he's doing more with the items that he asked for than just making chess pieces. And and to make a long story short, what he's doing is he's breaking out. The story is about the Shawshank Redemption and Andy redeeming himself from his innocence, redeeming himself from this horrific experience that he has in prison. And as I began to think about jailbreaks, this is the scene and this is the movie that came to mind as he plots his escape this wonderful, wonder, wonderfully conceived and uh, derived uh, jailbreak from Shawshank Prison. And so the scene that I'm going to show you is the dramatic scene towards the end where Andy is breaking free in the experience of being free from this prison called Shawshank. So let's watch this briefly together. And that's the tail end of that scene. And what you didn't see is how he broke out. What Andy did is he found a, a soft spot in the wall of his prison cell and day by day chiseled out a hole. And what he did is he covered up that hole with this a poster that he had. And he found out that the way out was to then take a rock and on a stormy night break through the sewer systems. And so what you saw there is he's crawling out in the midst of uh, several football fields worth of yards of sewer and grime and junk, and he finally makes it to, to pr- uh, out of prison. All that to say is this is a pretty moving scene of a prison break. This morning, what we're going to see in the book of Acts is, a, is another kind of prison break, is another kind of redemption. It's a, it's a dramatic prison break, although this time it's not going to be orchestrated by a man. It's going to be orchestrated by God himself. And this prison break is going to be a result of prayer. It's going to be the result of the earnest 
prayer of the church for Peter, who is in jail. And so this morning, we see the power of the praying church. Uh, Essentially two parts this morning. Number one, we're going to see the power of the praying church in Acts chapter 12. We'll walk through the story, make some notes, and then we'll begin to apply that in principles of a praying church. So we're going to see the power of a praying church, and then apply that in some principles of a praying church. And then we'll talk about realistically, what that means for us. So let's begin by this. Let's read this section uh, as a whole, and then we'll make some comments uh, on the parts. And so let's read chapter 12, and uh, we'll read probably down through verse 19 in the power of a praying church. Let's read God's word together. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he heard that this, met, uh, that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Now Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but... But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When, he had, uh, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer uh, entrance and the servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. And the story wraps up in verses 18 and 19. In the morning, there was no small commotion amongst the soldiers as as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. 
And this is God's very word. So four parts to the story in the power of a praying church. Number one, in verses one through four, we see that the persecution begins. And so when we read verses one through four, we see that there's a persecution that is arising amongst the Jews, and particularly with Herod, King Herod, against the Christians. Uh, until this point, there had only been one Christian martyr, and that, uh, and that was Stephen, and they had kind of gotten off with minimal persecution. But now it was getting heavy. Now it was different. Now we find out that Herod had uh, one of the Christians killed, and he was intending to do the same with Peter. And so the persecution now is reaching a new level. Now after James died, we see that Peter was next in line, if you will. Uh, what we find out is that Herod, who was, uh, I believe, the grandson of the Herod from the Christmas story that we're all familiar with, this was his grandson. And he was one, according to history, who did things to gain favor with his subjects. He didn't want there to be a revolt or an uprising against him, and so he appeased the crowd. And he ruled over a primarily Jewish population and the Jews at this point were becoming hostile to Christianity. They were recognizing that this was just not a variation of Judaism. This was a different ball game altogether. And so they were persecuting the Christians and what we find out is that Peter was next in line. We find out that this is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began with the day of Passover, and then there were seven days of unleavened bread. And so there was this period in which Herod apparently didn't want to execute Peter. Okay, so you see what's going on. He takes Peter, but then there's a a festival. And it's just not really good to kill someone during the Jewish festival. He didn't want a riot or any kind of uprising to happen, and so he waited. There was a time period, there were eight days altogether, in which Peter then sat in prison. And notice some of the interesting details that we find out in verse 1 through 4. We find out in verse 4 that he put him in prison, and he had him guarded by four squads of four soldiers. So four times four is what, church? 16, excellent, good job. Uh, And so there were a ton of soldiers guarding him. Now this is, the reason is this. If you read a little bit earlier in Acts, you find out that Peter had been in prison already and he had a supernatural breakout already. And so this time, Herod's like, there ain't no way, ain't no how, he's getting out. Around the clock, probably four people were with Peter all the time. And so what we find out in this section that persecution begins is that the situation is dire. It's not really looking good. And yet there's a lull. There's a time period for Peter just to sit And so the question that we have to ask is, what's the church going to do? How's the church going to respond to Peter's imprisonment and to this period of waiting? Well, what we find out in verse 5 is that when persecution begins, the people pray. And so in verse 5, the people begin to pray. I'll read it because it's very short. So Peter was kept in prison, and here's a contrast. Peter was kept in prison, but the church... That is, they were not in prison. The church was earnestly praying. Notice the word. They were earnestly praying to God for him. And so the contrast couldn't be any clearer. Peter was bound. Peter was enchained. Peter was hindered. And yet prayer was being loosed. Prayer was being set free, unhindered to God. In fact, one commentator by the name of Kent says it this way. He says, the church used its only available weapon, prayer. And so the church of God went to their knees and they prayed for Peter. Now it doesn't say what they prayed for, but undoubtedly they prayed for his safety. They prayed that he would get let out. They prayed that he would not be executed. 
And so what we see is that the people pray. Persecution begins and the people pray. And so what's going to happen? Is God going to answer their prayers? Will the power of prayer prevail? And what we find out in the next section is that Peter is rescued. Persecution begins, people pray, and as a result, Peter is rescued. Let's read verses 6 through 11 again, and we'll point out some, uh, some interesting details. In verse 6, notice, first of all, the timing of his release. Notice the timing of his release in verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So, okay, church, what is the timing of his release? It was the night before his execution. Why is that significant? Why does he share with us this information? Well, I would suggest to you that God waited to answer the prayers of the church until just the last moment. I mean, imagine Peter the days go by, the days go by, the days go by. The, fe- the festival and the feast, it's almost over. Your execution day is looming. And then imagine the church. They pray, and the day goes by. And they pray some more, and another day goes by. And they pray some more, and God doesn't answer their prayers. And they pray some more, and God doesn't answer their prayers. And it's the last minute. I mean, this is like the last minute. And what's going to happen? What are the people going to do? What is God going to do? He waited, I think, so that they would be persistent in their prayers. He waited. He wanted his church to be persistent in prayer for Peter until the very last minute. And we're going to find out in a little bit that that is exactly what they did. So not only notice the timing of his release in verse 6, but notice the state of Peter also in verse 6. What, church, what was Peter doing in verse 6? What was he doing, remember? He was sleeping, okay? Peter's sleeping. Now, I don't know, this is a bit of conjecture. I don't know what this means. It could be good, and it could be bad, right? On the one hand, it could be good. This could be an indication of Peter's great faith. I mean, I don't know about you, but another Christian leader has just died. You're on the docket tomorrow morning to die, and it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. Would you be sleeping? I don't think I would be sleeping, personally, (laughs) you know, Uh, but Peter, he's asleep, and so this could be, positively, he has great faith. Jesus said that he would die, um, essentially, in in a specific way, and so Peter maybe knew that this wasn't his time. On the other hand, it could be a negative thing, because if you remember in the Gospels, Peter had this thing about sleeping when he should be praying. Remember that incident, you know, in the garden? Jesus is like, pray, and he comes back, and Peter's like... Right? He's sleeping, you know, while he should be praying. So this may be a negative thing because what we find out is that what was the church doing while Peter was sleeping? Do you remember? They were praying while Peter was sleeping. And so we don't know, but it's interesting enough. So not only the timing of the release, the state of Peter, but notice the details in verses 7 through 11. We won't read it, but it was a supernatural release, right? I mean, this, the the the. the outbreak that we saw with Andy, the prison break, he orchestrated, orchestrated that. He got it all together. He arranged it. But what we see here is that this was no mere act of man. This was not something that Peter conjectured and came up with all by himself. No, this was a supernatural act of God. So just a few things that should have, stand, that should have stood out to us that are like, oh, that doesn't normally happen in verse 7, 11, uh, 7 through 11. Number one, the angel's light woke Peter up but it didn't wake anybody else up. That's interesting, isn't it? 
Yeah, just, just Peter, okay? Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting, right? Uh, and so the light, right? Uh, not only that, but his chains just what? Ka-chink, ka-chink, you know? Oh, my chains are gone. I didn't know that they did that. You know, the kid's kind, when they're, when they're broken, you can do that. <laughs> you know, they just fall off, the fake ones. Uh, these weren't fake, you know. They were real, and they just fell off, right? And so the angel wakes them up, and what do they do? Uh, there's the detail about there are guards, right? And so they not only get past the two uh, guards that are probably right there with Peter, but then they get through other guards, right? They just waltz by them. Did they not see them? Were they asleep? We don't know. But it's supernatural. And then, this is my favorite of all, they're walking out of the city, right? And Peter thinks he's like dreaming. And you get to the city gate, and what does it do? Creak, you know? It just opens by itself. That's amazing. And he walks through, and then as, you know, a lot of angels' story in the Bible do, he's like, oh, okay, where, where, did, the, where did my angel go? He just disappears. And so we see that persecution began, the people prayed, and as a result... Peter was supernaturally rescued. And then the story concludes in 12 through 19 with what I call the power of a praying church. Let's just notice a few things. Notice in verse 12, number one, the church was praying. We we can't miss this. Let's read this together in verse 12. Verse 12 of chapter 12. And so Peter is released. He comes to himself. He's like, wow, God has done this. God has rescued me, right? And then in verse 12, what's the very next thing that we find out? Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went out to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, that is John Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying, right? And so the first thing we see is that this is intentional. Peter's release is linked with the prayers of the church. It couldn't be more clear. Peter was released in a supernatural way to advance the mission of Christ because the people decided to pray. Now, this is speculation, but what if they didn't? What if the church was like our church? What if the church was like some other churches? What if that church prayed like we prayed? Individually? Corporately? Would Peter have been released? I don't know. What if this church decided not to pray? Would Peter have been released? We don't know. But the text is utterly clear. They did pray, and as a result... Peter was released. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan preacher, said it this way, and I love what he says about it. He says, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Isn't that a wonderful way to put it? It was prayer that fetched the angel. So not only was the church praying in verse 12, but they were praying together. Did you notice that? Let's read it again in verse 12. They were praying together. It said, where many people had gathered and were praying. So here's the point, right? It was the whole church, or at least a group of believers. And uh, we don't know for sure, but this may have been the house church that Peter himself was associated with. That's maybe why he went there first. But it was a group of believers. So get this. The church came together, and when was it? Was it in the morning? No. Was it at noontime? No. Was it in the evening? No, it was at night, most likely late at night. One, two, three, they're praying late at night. And so imagine this in your mind, Christians are coming together, losing sleep because they were praying, and they were praying together. It's not like they said, oh, Peter's in prison, he's going to die tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to go to my house and pray. You're going to go to your house and pray. I'm going to go to my prayer closet and pray. They didn't pray, although I'm sure they prayed individually, but what did they do? They came 
together as a church to pray corporately, and that's significant. They prayed together at night. Third, they didn't expect this surprising answer. I mean, when you read the story, right, it's full of irony, is it not? I mean, you're meant to laugh at what happens, right? And so Peter comes, and he's like, knock, 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 knock. It's me, you know. I'm out, you know. And so this servant girl who's named Rhoda comes up, and she hears, it's Peter, and she knows it's him. And in her joy and in her excitement, she recognizes her, his voice. What does she do? She runs back to tell them, right? And so she's like, oh, let me go get them. And Peter's like, hello, <laughs> I'm here. Uh, and and, and it's, it's funny because she goes in, and then how do they respond? What do they say? They're like, no, it's not Peter, right? She's like, yes, it's Peter. And they're like, it can't be Peter. And, and she's like, it's him. I know it's him. And they say, well, no, no. It must be his ghost or his angel or his guardian angel, right? It's not him. And she's like, it's him. And so they finally come, come back. And Peter, this whole time, as they're having this conversation, is it Peter? Is it not Peter? Hello, <laughs> I'm out here in the street. Please let me in. They're looking to kill me, <laughs> you know? And so they, they come in and, and they're astonished, right? I mean, don't you get the idea that they have been praying fervently for Peter, for God to release him supernaturally as he has done already, and yet they don't expect it, right? It's, it's, it's meant to be funny, and it's meant to be a lesson. They had an unexpected answer to prayer. I don't know if they didn't think God could do it. I don't know if they didn't think God would do it in that way, but they were surprised. They were surprised that God would answer their prayers in that way. And so we see in verses 1 through 19 the power of a praying church. Let's bring this home a little bit. Let's talk about three, and there are lots. Let's talk about three principles then of a praying church. There's a lot that we can learn from this passage about prayer, both individually, but especially corporately. That's where I'm going with this. What can we learn about prayer together as a church? Principles of a praying church. Number one, they pray earnestly in dire circumstances. They pray earnestly in dire circumstances. And so what we see is that this was the direst of dire circumstances. It was the last minute. Their leader, one of their great leaders, Peter, was going to be executed. James, they'd already lost. And so this, I mean, if there was ever a time for a church to pray, it was this, right? And they came together, and they prayed earnestly. The text specifically says they prayed earnestly. So this wasn't just a, let's get together and we'll pray for five minutes and then we'll have some coffee and then we'll talk and then we'll leave, right? They prayed together, probably for hours because the circumstance was dire. Peter was in jail and he was about to die. And so what about us? Are there dire circumstances in our community? Are there dire circumstances in your family? Are there dire circumstances in your life? that need prayer. I would guess that there are, because there always are. And what the church did is they responded to those dire circumstances. At this point, it was Peter in prison. They prayed, and they not only prayed individually, they prayed corporately. They prayed together. And so let me ask you this. I don't know if there are any Christians that we know from this congregation or around here that are in prison physically but I do know of a lot of lost people in my life and in your life, and they are in prison spiritually. They're chained to their sins. They're in a spiritual prison. They need to be set free, and how are we gonna do it? 
by prayer. We need prayer to let them loose. There may be believers, Christians, who have placed their faith in Christ and they are in a fight. They're in the fight of their lives over a particular sin or struggle and they can't seem to defeat it. They're in spiritual bondage to sin and they have chains on their hands and they desperately need for us to pray corporately for them. There are those of us who have financial chains bound around our feet. We need jobs. We need to get out of debt. We need financial help. And we need to pray for their release. There are people who have the chains of disease on their wrists. They need God's healing or they need strength to endure whatever God may will. And we as a church need to pray for them. And so the first principle of a praying church is that they pray earnestly in and for dire circumstances. We're going to talk in a little bit about how we can do that. Secondly, not only do they pray in dire circumstances, but I've said this before and I'll say it again, they pray corporately. I can't emphasize this enough. If you don't get anything else, if you don't hear anything else that I say and that the scripture, this scripture is teaching, it's that the church needs to pray corporately together to unleash God's power. That's the point. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the great, wonderful British pastor of 100 plus years ago, this is what he said. Let this sink in. The condition of the church, or a church, may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So think about that. The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, a graceometer, a graceometer, if you will. And from it, we may judge of the amount of the divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one, uh, one of the first tokens that dies in his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. And so the question that we have to ask is what is Grace Bible Church's prayerometer? Graceometer, if you will. What's our graceometer look like? What's the amount of God's divine working in our people? Is God present? Is He absent? Are we slothful in prayer? What does our graceometer look like? Is it full? Is it empty? Is it somewhere in between? And what Spurgeon is saying and what this text is saying is that when people, believers, gather together corporately to pray that the graceometer, God's divine working in a church for His church and in the community, it goes up and up and up, and up. And so how's our graceometer at Grace Bible Church? Where are we? Should it be higher than it is? Not only do they pray in dire circumstances, not only do they pray corporately, but thirdly, they can, and I use the word can here, they can experience surprising answers to prayer. I don't think God was obligated to answer the prayers, but he chose as a loving Heavenly Father to answer the dire prayers of his people to set Peter free. And we can experience, too, these surprising answers to prayer. I don't know if you've ever had this kind of experience before to where you're praying for something and then God answers that prayer in a way that's above and beyond what you could even think, above and beyond what you even asked for. By way of personal illustration, and I've probably shared this before, so forgive me for being repetitive, but it's a, it's a, big, uh, it's a big part of Shelley, Shelley's life and my life. But when we were at Dallas Seminary, 
we met in seminary, and I don't know if you know this, but seminary is expensive. <laughs> it takes a lot of money to go to seminary, even Dallas, which is a cheaper one. And so we met, right, and uh, <laughs> Shelly always makes fun of me because by the time that we got married, um, I was broke. <laughs> I was just broke, you know? Like I had money, and I had spent it on school, 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 and we're getting married, and I'm broke, you know? She's like, I'm your sugar mom. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you have more money than I do at this point. That's absolutely true. Um, and so, but what we had to do is we couldn't both go to school at the same time. We just couldn't afford it. And so we decided uh, that we would switch and alternate. And so I believe Shelly went to school first. And so I took a semester off, maybe a semester and a half. I'm not sure. I took some time off and I worked full time. And so that enabled us to get Shelly through. And by the time she was done, well, then it was time for me to re-engage in my classes. But, you know, financially it was still tough. And uh, we needed for Shelly then to take on more hours. We needed her to get a full-time job because I was working part-time, full-time, and I had to go back to part-time to get through school. At least I thought so. And so we were praying. We, and ideally was, we wanted Shelly to work at the seminary. And so we prayed, and we prayed, and we applied, and we got online, and we did all this. And there were certain jobs that would come up, and we'd pray, pray God, this sounds good. Will you give her this job? It pays X amount. It'll, it'll meet the bills, you know. And it was no. No, no, no. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so maybe we don't want Shelly to work at the seminary. Well, lo and behold, in the interview process, somebody called her, and I don't know who it was, but they're like, hey, listen, you have accounting experience, and we've been wanting to create an accounting position here for years, and we've not had the person to do it, and we think that you're the person. And so we're going to consider creating a position just for you to work at the seminary. And we're like, really? That would be awesome and amazing, and even outside of the scope of what we could even ask for. Long story short, they created a position for my wife that was better paying than any of the other jobs that we had been passed up for, and, and here's the kicker, my tuition half off, baby, because she worked for the seminary. And so we made it through seminary uh, with, you know, by God's grace. And, and so for us, that was kind of one of those surprising prayer answers. I can't believe that God answered prayer in this way. So let's, as a church, let's not, sh- let's not sell God short on what he can do. Let's not pray lacking faith that God could do miraculous and amazing things in our church and in our community. That's what this church did, and God answered them in a miraculous way. And so what we've seen this morning is we've seen the power of a praying church in the early church. We've seen three principles of a praying church. They pray dire, in dire circumstances. They pray. They pray corporately together, and they can experience the powerful and surprising hand of God in prayer. And so we've seen a Shawshank-like prison breakout, if you will, all because, all because a local church prayed. They prayed corporately. They prayed in dire circumstances, and they, they experienced an amazing answer to prayer. And so how can we do that? I'll take the remaining time that we have this morning to lay out an idea that's been simmering um, amongst myself and the elders, uh, thanks in part, uh, actually in, in large amount, to Cal Kaufman, who ironically is not here this morning. Um, but this has been simmering uh, amongst us for a while, and that is this question of how can we incorporate prayer into the life of our church more? How can we do what the church in Acts did? How can we come together and pray earnestly for needs and for all sorts of other things? How can we develop a hunger and a desire to come humbly before God and to ask God to do supernatural things in our church and to pray for needs, to pray for the lost, to pray for ourselves? How can we do that? And so here's what we'd like to do. Starting next year, uh, that is in 2012, in January, 
probably on the last Sunday of the month, don't know that for sure yet, but probably on the last Sunday of the month, we're going to have a corporate prayer meeting. We're just going to have a prayer gathering, and it's going to be during Sunday school hour. So if you're in the adult Sunday school class, we encourage you to come to that once a month. We're going to have a corporate prayer gathering, but it's not just for people who have been in adult Sunday school. If you've not been in adult Sunday school, come pray with us. If you're not teaching the kids, come pray with us. If you're sitting out and having coffee and enjoying fellowship, come pray with us. This is open to anyone. And what we're going to do is it's, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be cookie cutter. What my heart and our, as elders, we've talked about this, what we want to do is to develop a hunger for prayer so that we would come together and pray out earnestly to God for him to do supernatural things. And so we will do all sorts of things. It's going to be different every month. It's not going to be cookie cutter. We will take prayer requests. We will encourage you as a church to, you can do it anonymously or you can send us emails or you can ask us to pray for you and your circumstance during that time and we'll do that. We're going to try to teach our people to pray. And so we're going to go through model prayers. We're going to have teaching from the Bible and otherwise about what it means to pray. We're going to try to teach you to have a corporate, I mean individual prayer life as well so that you're not uncomfortable praying. I don't, there may be, I bet there are a lot of you out there that you just, you don't, you've never, you don't pray a lot, you don't know how, you're uncomfortable both individually and corporately. We want, we want to teach you how to do that. We want you to learn from us and we can learn from you as we all learn to pray together. And so it's going to be, um, it's going to be different. There's going to be things that are different every month. There are going to be different emphases every month, if you will. It's not going to be cookie cutter. There will be all sorts of other elements from meditation to song I hope it's creative. I hope it's engaging. But most importantly, I hope it's prayer. (laughs) We need to come together to experience the power of a praying church. And that's how we're going to try to do that. And so there'll be more information ahead, but most likely the the last Sunday of the month, whether it's the 4th or the 5th, we're going to do that in here together at 9 o'clock. Come. Come be a part of that. And let's just see what God may do when we pray together as a church. So let's pray. Father, we do pray, and God, my prayer is that you would develop this hunger in my heart and my life first and foremost, that I would be on my knees more, that I would be waking up early more, that I would uh, have a humble humility and um, a humble dependency upon you. Father, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here, that you would help us as we see how you answered prayer in a supernatural way so many years ago. God, you don't change. That is the God that we serve. You are the God that we serve. The God who literally broke Peter out of prison so that he could go and tell people about Jesus. That is the God that we serve. We serve you, and you can do that again. Father, you do do that again. And we want to be a church like this church that is willing to be inconvenienced, that is willing to make prayer a priority, that is willing to not do things and to gather even in the wee hours of the night and not just pray for a few minutes, but earnestly call out for your hand to work. This is what we desire, and we utterly recognize that we can do everything here on our own power, on our own strength. We can have good music and preaching and programs and work hard, and we can do all sorts of things right, but it can be in vain if we don't come to you and ask that you would move and ask that you would move in our midst and that you would do something utterly supernatural and bring people to faith in Christ, bring people to maturity in Christ, answer prayers, and do that which is utterly supernatural so that our community may look and say, what is God doing there? How can we be a part? And so, Father, would you stir our hearts, and I pray especially as we
plan corporate prayer gatherings as a church. Oh, Father, stir the hearts of my brothers and sisters. Cause them to come. Give them humility. Help them not to be afraid. We're all learning in this together. Dear God, help us. Teach us to pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's do this, guys. I'm going to ask you to stand up, and uh, as I hope to be a tradition, I'm going to read a section from Hebrews. It's a wonderful benediction. So let's stand. I'll read this benediction, and then we'll be gone. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and God's people said, amen. Thanks, guys. See you next week with Christmas series.